forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the gift of your word. And as we think on these things this morning, I pray that you would just fill Pastor Paul's mouth with your words and that you would open each of our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Come to Revelation chapter 17. And uh, there's a lot going on in this particular chapter. As I have been reflecting on it, uh, some of my time has been spent trying to make sense of it. And I don't think it's that difficult. Uh, there's details of it that are difficult. But the overall picture, I don't think, is difficult. I think one of the things, though, that struck me was the reality behind the passage. And I believe the practical um, emphasis that... Uh, John is communicating to the church through this particular um, few verses of Scripture. This chapter helps us make sense of the world in which we live in. Remember, one of the things that we've been talking about in the book of Revelation is that it's heaven's perspective of our world. We live in a material world. We live in a physical universe, but 
um, underlying that, all around that, woven into that, is a spiritual reality. And Revelation gives us a glimpse and an understanding of what that spiritual reality looks like. As we come to this chapter, we begin to get an understanding of why it is such a difficult world to live in, why it seems so oppressive at times, why its seductive power seems overwhelming in our lives at times. And while much of the language in this particular chapter is symbolic, we do get a portrayal of the forces that stand behind the physical realities that we experience. In particular, this seductive influence of the world. Remember that John is describing the period of time known as the last days, or the last times. Um, the last days are the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And the book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of the exalted Christ reigning over the world. And so what we have is a glimpse of how Christ is reigning over the world, bringing it all under dominion in order to hand it over to the Father. We understand that during the last days, the church is in tough. And it began really at uh, the exaltation of Christ when at his exaltation, Satan was thrown out of heaven. And in fact, in chapter 12 of uh, Revelation, you'll find that emphasis, I believe it's seven times, thrown down thrown down, thrown down. Christ, uh, Satan has been thrown down from heaven. But one of the things that it says about Satan is that as a result of being thrown down, he's angry. And he knows his time is short. In other words, he knows that, that the end of the last days is coming. And so he only has a short period of time in which to try and wreak havoc against the world and certainly against the followers of Christ. And so it says that he goes off to make war against the saints. So Revelation, in part, describes the war of Satan against the people of God. Satan doesn't war alone, though. He, he, he brings alongside of him a, an unholy trinity, and we've been talking a little bit about that. Uh, there's certainly the dragon, who is Satan himself, and then there's the beast from the sea, which is described in Revelation chapter 13, which is really the political arm, the coercive raw power of the world systems against the church and the people of God. And then you come to uh, Revelation chapter 13, the last half, and we have there described the beast from the land, which is, the, which is described as a lamb with two horns. And it, it's emphasizing the deceptive reality of also part of Satan's war on the people of God. Uh, that, that third beast is also known as the false prophet. And I believe one of the primary tools in which the false prophet uses to seduce and deceive the world and to try and seduce and deceive the people of God is the great prostitute, Babylon. And so we begin to see uh, this, this big picture of how it is that Satan is making war against the saints and attempting to destroy them. We also get a sense, though, as, the, as Revelation is moving to an end, that we are really bumping up now to the end of the last days. Uh, here we have described the judgment of the great prostitute. In, in chapter 19 and 20, we'll have the judgment against the, the dragon, uh, the, the land beast, and the sea beast as they are cast into the lake of fire. We'll have the great white throne judgment. We'll have the destruction of the world that we know. And then we'll have the, the description of the new heavens and the new earth. It almost sounds too much. Um, but yet that's how Revelation helps us understand the world in which we live. Revelation comes from a point of view that time is linear, not cyclical. That there is a beginning and there is an end. And there is an every end to everything and there's a very real conclusion to the world in which we live. And so we find that described here in the book of Revelation. Coming back then to 
uh, chapter 17, what I want to do is, is try and briefly uh, just drop in on a few um, uh, things that are said there. Uh, the, the first six verses describe the great prostitute. Um, the next verses from chapter 7, really, to chapter 18, uh, describe the beast and, and those that are aligned with the beast. Out of that, though, there's three very practical things that I think we can learn um, or that we can take away from uh, Revelation 17 to remind ourselves again that this is a book for now. This is a book for the people of God today. It's not just a book written for a select group of people that may or may not exist at the end of the last days. It is a book that is meant to help the church wherever they might find themselves in the last days. And so as we come to the woman and the beast, what we find is this section is really can divided in a couple ways. One is the judgment of the great prostitute. And then the instrument of her judgment, which is ultimately the beast. And so John begins by simply saying, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Revelation tells the story of this. And this great prostitute, it's helpful to get a, the big picture in mind from Revelation 17 before we move on. But the great prostitute, as she's described in a number of places in, in chapter 17, verse 5, uh, verse uh, 15, verse 16, she has declared to be the great prostitute. But John also says, I saw a woman. And so we understand that, that, that part of the description of this great prostitute is that she is a woman in verse 3 and verse 7 that is mentioned. We also understand that, that, that she is named. And so it's, it's bigger than simply the great prostitute. She's called Babylon, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. So what John is intending us to understand is all the abominations of the world, all of the, the spiritual adulteries of the world come or flow from this one great prostitute, this representative picture. And finally, we come to realize that in fact this great prostitute is, is in, in, in embodied, so to speak, or um, materialized in a great city. Babylon, the representative city of all the cities in this world, whether it be Las Vegas, Monte Carlo, Vancouver, Parksville, that live in opposition to God. And so the great prostitute then is, is, is Babylon. And it's a picture of everything that is opposed to God. It's fascinating to me as I, I think through this that John is probably doing a couple of things. Um, I think there's a reason to at least compare this woman in chapter 17 with the woman in chapter 12. We understand that the sign that John saw in heaven, which was a, a woman, we understand was more than an individual woman. That woman represented the church in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. It was much bigger than a woman. We understand it also spoke of Mary. And here then, this woman, this great prostitute, is, is more than an individual, if it ever was intended to be an individual. Secondly, though, this individual, this great prostitute, is, is introduced to John by an angel who was one of those who had the seven bowls. I don't think it's by accident that you go to Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, and there we have also described an angel, one of them who had the seven bowls, introduces John to the bride, the bride of Christ, which is the church. And so we have two contrasting women, so to speak. We have the great prostitute, Babylon, and we have the bride, which is the church of God. We also recognize that they are two cities. One is representative of Babylon, and the other is representative of the new Jerusalem. In fact, John says, I saw Jerusalem coming out of heaven uh, adorned as the bride. And so we have this contrast between two 
um, women, this contrast between two cities, and then also we have a contrast between two peoples. As we've said, there are only two peoples in this world. You belong to one or the other. You belong to those who have the mark of the beast, or you belong to those who are sealed and marked by God. There is no third option. And so we find the two peoples also represented in this particular chapter. I think it's helpful just to, to, to remind us that Babylon is a, is a code word, and not so much a code word. It's just a word that represents something much bigger than the city of Babylon. Certainly Babylon has its roots in the Tower of Babel in the city that's described in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to uh, 3. Um, but what we see there is in that uh, attempt to build the Tower of Babel was a focus of people to try and build a civilization without God. To try and uh, uh, obtain for themselves a name and a reputation apart from God. To try and live in this world independent of God. To be something to be, all, all their accomplishments earned without any reference to God. And so Babylon has come to be representative of everything that is opposed to God. Living life in, in independence from God. And that is what we're meant to understood as we think of this great prostitute, this city of Babylon, as one who stands for everything that is opposed to God or in contrast to God. There's an emphasis, though, that I think we can't miss here. Babylon is called a great prostitute. There's an there's a, a, a undertone here that John is intending us to realize is that there is an incredible seduction in the world around us. There is an attempt to deceive. Uh, the, the beast comes at us with coercive power and whacks us over the head and says, if you won't offer incense to Caesar, you'll lose your life. The beast, or the, the, the woman, Babylon, the great prostitute, comes to us like a wolf in sheep's clothing and tries to salute, seduce, and allure us. And what we see here is, a, is, is, a, is an allurement to spiritual unfaithfulness, to spiritual adultery, to uh, idolatry. Um, uh, and, and remember, it's a book that's written to the church, to the seven churches. So in part, it's a warning to you and I not to be seduced away from God. Not to be drawn by the world into spiritual unfaithfulness towards God. Not to be those who leave the worship of the one true God and embrace the worship of all the world and everything in the world around us. And so there's an undercurrent here which is really strong and we ought to pay attention to is that there is a real force at work in this world that is intending to lure us away from worship to God, to seduce us away from worship to God. In fact, it's a helpful but very difficult exercise to read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and particularly the sections of those chapters which uh, refer to the allurement of physical adultery and put in there the allurement to physical or spiritual adultery and realize that just as there is a seduction and appeal that, that, that attracts one into physical adultery, so there is a subtleness and an allurement and a, sed and a seductive power and lips that drip with honey and adornment that pulls us into spiritual unfaithfulness. And so this really is a chapter that is, at first off, a warning to the church not to commit 
spiritual adultery with the world around us. Is it James? I believe it is James. James chapter 4, verse 4, as James is writing to the church. And he says to them, you adulterous people. That's a reference to spiritual adultery, not physical adultery. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? And so this is a passage that is a strong warning against spiritual adultery. This uh, particular great prostitute is described as sitting on many waters. In fact, four times in chapter 17, she's described as sitting. I, I, I think that's a position of authority. It's a position of sovereignty. That's what kings do. They sit on their thrones and they judge and they rule. Who is she in authority over? Well, it says the kings of the earth, the nations of this world in Verse um, 18, the kings of this earth, she has dominion over them. The earth dwellers. The earth dwellers are described in the book of Revelation as those who have the mark of the beast. Those who are following the beast and who have been deceived by the false prophet and have been lured into, into spiritual adultery by the great prostitute. Notice it says she sits on many waters. Well, we know who the many waters are. Certainly Babylon, the original city, was built on a system of canals that were fed by the river Euphrates. And in fact, Jeremiah 51.13 describes those there as those who dwell amongst many waters. But John and the angel describes who the many waters are a little bit farther down in verse 15 where he says, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, the, 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 the influence of this great prostitute, the influence of Babylon is over the peoples of this world. And so those are the, it's of those who she has uh, authority over. She's described as sitting on the beast. We really are not going to have time to look at the beast. Um, you might want to go back to Revelation 13. It is the beast that is described in Revelation 13 here. And maybe uh, listen to the sermon or do some reading on Revelation 13. That is the same beast. So she sits on the beast that rises from the sea. And it, it, what that is saying is that is describing to us the source of her authority. The, the source of her power, the influence. So in other words, what it's saying is that there is demonic influence that undergirds the seduction of the world in which we live. It's not neutral, loved ones. This world is, is not a neutral place. Its allurement is demonically inspired. And so the woman is described as sitting on this beast. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet, the colors of royalty, power, nobility, and wealth. I commend to you to read Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 13 to 18, where almost the same description is given to Israel, who prostituted itself with the nations around her, adorned in the same way, chastised and judged by God for the same actions that the great prostitute will be judged. She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, again, giving the uh, illusion of success and wealth and prosperity. She has, has in her hand a golden cup. The, ex, the outside looks really appealing, looks really enticing, but inside it is full of abominations. When the actual city of Babylon is judged, it's described in Jeremiah chapter 50 in verse 51. And there Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand 
making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. And we know she's Babylon because in verse 5 it's described there's a mystery. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and earth abomination, is written on her forehead. From her comes all the abominations of the earth. Out of her spew all of the seductions that pull people away from the worship of the one true God. And the culmination of her sins is her bloodlust. She's drunk with the blood of the saints and the bloods of blood of the martyrs of Christ. The world system has as its goal the destruction of the people of God. So shocking is this picture that John says, I marveled greatly. I think what was going on here is when the world system and what underlies it was exposed to John, he was shocked. He thought, really? You know, maybe he was one that, well, you know, I know the world is not the best place. I know the world can, can distract us from God, but really this is what underlies the world and its system? And it says John was shocked. He marveled greatly. Is that how we think as we look at the world and as we see how it's influenced and how it's directed and as we come to understand what undergirds it? Do we even believe what the Bible says is underneath the world in which we live and breathe? May God help us to have the same reaction that John had as we consider the great prostitute Babylon. So it's about the judgment of this great prostitute, Babylon. The instrument of judgment is the beast, which is the instrument of God's righteousness. The beast is described as the one who was, is not, and is to come. We've already referred to that. This is the beast that keeps coming back. It's a kingdom that keeps coming back in various ways and in various forms. We know that there is a final Antichrist, capital A, but before that, John describes there are many Antichrists. And what happens is they show up and then it's like they die. Um, there's a mortal wound and they disappear for a while and then all of a sudden they show up again. And we also remember that this is a parody of Christ. The true king who was and is and is to come. This is the beast who was, is not, and is about to come. But he goes to destruction. Twice in this text we are told that when the beast comes back, finally he goes to destruction. And in fact, uh, Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians describes the destruction of the beast by the breath of the mouth of Christ. Whew. He's destroyed. Verses 9 to 13. John says it called, or the angel says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. I have spent a lot of time on this. I, I, I think I have some things to say, but we don't have time to say them this morning. Other than this, um, I think it's symbolic language that's being described here. Uh, there's a sense in which the, he says the seven heads are seven mountains and seven kings. I was reminded of the, the um, vision that Pharaoh had. Remember, he had the same vision, but from two different perspectives. One was he saw seven heads of wheat that devoured themselves, and the other was seven cows that devoured themselves. And Joseph says, well, they're one and the same thing. They're saying the same story. And so I think that in part what's going on here is as, as the angel describes to him the seven heads as um, seven mountains and seven kings, he's describing one and the same thing, symbolic for the wholeness, the completeness of authority that is arrayed against the church in these last days. But the, the, the purpose of the beast, I simply want to say this, that 
There's two purposes behind the beast and the evil alliance that it forms with the seven kings and then the ten kings. And that is to make war against the land or the lamb, which will ultimately bring about his own destruction, and to destroy the great prostitute. You get a sense, too, before I, I come back and comment on that last one, that we're moving closer to the end, aren't we? There's a momentum in the text. There's a momentum to the book of, of Revelation. John says, as he's describing the seven kings, he says, five have been, one is, and one is yet to come. And there's an eighth, but he comes out of the seventh. But it's John's way of saying, listen, we're pushing closer and closer to the end. And that is something that we ought to know. The end is near, as Revelation 1 tells us. The dragon knows that his time is short. And John acknowledges that as he describes these seven kings, five of which have been, one which is, and one which is yet to come. And so again, encouragement to the church, hang in there just a little while longer. Endure just a little bit more. Know that the end is in sight, so to speak. And what's fascinating about this particular text is the destruction of the great prostitute. On the one hand, we have the great prostitute Babylon riding on the beast, empowered by, sustained by, influenced by the beast, and all of a sudden the beast sort of like turns back on itself and devours the prostitute. And I think that's something that most of us know that we, who have lived long enough and watched things long enough, evil eventually will turn in on itself. Those who pursue evil, those who get involved in addictions, eventually those addictions will kill them if they don't get help. There's a sense in which there is no such thing as a thousand-year Reich. Why? Because evil turns back against itself. And here we realize that the beast and the false trinity cannot stomach anything else getting worship. As Babylon is getting worship and is seducing the peoples of the world, they throw their fury against Babylon and the kings and the leaders in the cities of this world. So how do we apply a text like this? What do we do with it? I think there's three things that, I, 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 that, that just have been resonating in my head. Babylon, a city that we live in, but not for. A city that we live in, but not for. Do you sense the tension here in this text? Do you sense the dilemma that the people of God find themselves in? Babylon is not good. Babylon is not the, a kind place. In fact, Babylon is outright spiritually dangerous. And yet this is where we find ourselves as the people of God living. Whether it's in Oceanside, whether it's somewhere in the States, whether it's somewhere in Europe, whether it's somewhere in Asia, whether it's somewhere in, in, in South America. And sometimes I, I you know, I, 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 I stop and I just catch my breath as Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says, Father as you sent me into the world. A world that is such a dangerous place, a world that is, is full of so much seduction and allurement away from the worship of God, God has sent his son into. And then Jesus said, and I have sent you into the world. And so there's this, this tension that we ought to feel. I feel it. That, that we want to run. And in fact, in chapter 18, there's this confusing statement where he says, come out of Babylon. Come out of her, people. And then Jesus, in, a little bit later in that prayer, says, though that even though you've sent me into the world, I am not of the world, just as they are not of the world. And so we recognize, okay, there's something going on here. I might be sent into the world, 
But it's not my home. It's not my comfort zone. It's not where I, I, I really feel safe and secure. And then there's the prayer of Jesus where he says, um, where he prays, Father, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Revelation is a book that describes how God keeps us from the evil one. And so we're to live in Babylon, but we're not to live for Babylon. We understand, though, that's not easy, is it? And so it begins by uh, cultivating a healthy sense of fear that John says when he says, I marveled greatly. He was kind of shocked when he realized really what undergirds this world and all of its system. It's spiritual seduction to the people of God. And so while we live here, we realize this is not our home. I commend you to read uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 and 13 where we, we, we read about those individuals who lived in this world but they were seeking a city whose builder and maker was God. They understood that this was not the city that they lived for. This was not the city where they felt at home. This was not the city that they felt comfortable in. We shouldn't feel comfortable in Oceanside. We should live here. We should seek its prosperity but we ought never to feel comfortable here. We ought to be seeking a city whose builder and maker is God, the new Jerusalem. We also realize that while we are part of this world, we don't love this world. John describes it. He says, do not love the world or the things in this world. He says, because anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life. That is the seductive influence of the great prostitute. All of those things are not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's a tension that we're going to face, loved ones. This world is a pretty place. This world is an appealing place. This world does have a lot to offer. But this world also has the intention of pulling us away from dependence, trust, confidence, worship of God. We're part of this world, but we don't find our identity in this world. I have for years marked in my Bible, and my first Bible that I got after I became a Christian back in uh, 1979, I quickly wrote Hebrews, and I underlined this section in Hebrews chapter 11, 24 to 26, about Moses. Fascinated me. Moses grew up with all this power and all this privilege and, uh, of, of Egypt. He had all of the glory and the pleasures of Egypt at his hand. But it says as he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That was a way of saying Moses, when he saw all the privilege of this world, all that it could be offered, he realized the danger in it. And he refused to identify himself with Pharaoh's daughter. It says choosing to mis be mistreated with the people of God rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Something tweaked in Moses' head. Maybe he had lived with the pleasures of the palace long enough that he, he knew there was a hollowness. He knew there was an emptiness. Sure, there is a pleasure in sin. That's why it's so appealing. That's why seduction works. There is, there is a pleasure in it. But it's fleeting. It's passing. And it's destructive. And so we live in this world with the realization that all the world has to offer is actually passing away. And it's fleeting in what it offers us. Some of you might remember a series we did not long ago on the book of Daniel. I think if I'm correct, the, 
subtitle of that series was a survival manual for the saints who live in Babylon. If you want to remind yourself or refresh yourself how to live in Babylon, but nor, not for Babylon, go back and read the first six chapters of Daniel. That is a, a, an amazing description of how we remain faithful to God, how we live for Jerusalem while, while God has placed us in Babylon. And so we pray, Father, show us where we are in bed with Babylon Show us where we are co cooperating with the Babylonian-ness and even supporting it. Give us a glimpse of its evil. Grant us courage to come out and identify fully with the city of God. So Babylon, it's a city we live in, but not for. Secondly, notice verse 14. I, I just want to bring you back to verse 14. Christ is the king that you want to be with, not against. Christ is the king that you want to be with, not against. It says the beast and the ten kings will make war against the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. There's no contest. Jesus wins hands down, so to speak. The, the war is over before there's even a, a weapon that's lifted in it. At the end of chapter 6, we read that when the sixth seal was broken and the wrath of God is unleashed in all its fullness, the earth dwellers cry out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For that great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's right, who can stand? The only people that can stand are those that are with him, not those that are against him. It's a beautiful description of those who are with him. I've read this a number of times, but I've never looked at it as a description of the believers like I have this last week or so. It's a description of the Christian, called, chosen, faithful. Those are the ones that are with the king on the winning side. Called. How are we called? We're called by the gospel of God. This is one of the things that you and I are called to do is go out in the world and to share the gospel because it's by hearing the word of God that people are called by God to respond. And so every single one here today who is a saint, a Christian, has been called by God through the gospel. There's this amazing truth that we're also chosen. There's a mystery behind this. I have embraced and accepted. I don't fully understand it. But I am so thankful that we are those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. That we are followers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords because God has set his electing love upon us. Not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything that we would do, but simply because he loves us. So we're called, we're chosen, but we're also faithful. You see, this, this puts to rest, I think, any notion that, well, now I'm, a, a, now I'm called by God, now I'm chosen by God, I can live however I jolly well please. Not true. There's, there's three legs of the stool of salvation, so to speak. The third leg of that is faithfulness, and that's one of the themes of Revelation. We are called to endure. We are called to continue to obey the commands of God. We are called to stand to the testimony of Jesus. We are called to be faithful. Let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so it's these that are with the king. It's going to be a glorious return. I, 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 I think of it actually fairly often. And I'm blown away as, as Matthew chapter 24 describes the coming of Christ in all his glory. 
the sounds, the sights will be, will be deafening and will be awe-inspiring. It says, with him will come the angels as of flaming fires. And also, Revelation says, accompanying him are those that are dressed in fine linen, white and pure. That's the people of God. That's the church. We will come with Christ. And we will be part of the victorious army. None of us wants to be on a losing team, do we? We don't. We, we don't want to be on the, the losing uh, team in our lab at, at school. We don't want to be on the losing team of hockey. We don't want to root for the losing baseball team. We don't want to be with the sales group that is the lowest number in sales. We all want to be on the winning team. We do. Unless you're odd. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry if you're odd. <laughs> don't you want to be on the team that wins eternally? A team that goes on to enjoy life everlasting in the new heaven and the new earth, then heed the call of Christ. As he speaks to your heart, as he draws you to himself, as you have confusion and questions and are seeking and searching, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Respond to the call. Rejoice in God's love that he has set upon you and begin to walk with him. I want to be with him on the winning side. Finally, there's this fascinating verse in verse 17. It comes at the heels of the destruction of the great prostitute at the hands of the beast and the ten kings. For God. In verse 14, it's for he, Christ, is the Lord of lords. That's why he wins, because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Why does the beast turn on the harlot? For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God's purposes will always prevail, even in the hearts of the ungodly. There is a, a picture here that is so much bigger than we are able to comprehend. We have been talking for such a long time as we've been in the book of Revelations that there is a throne in heaven and that God is on that throne. And that that throne is like the control tower of, of the universe where God directs all the comings and goings to its perfect end and its perfect conclusion. I don't understand how it works, but I know that God never cancels out our responsibility to act and make choices and decisions. But his influence is beyond anything we can imagine. It says here that he can even put it into the minds of these kings to turn on the great prostitute. I was thinking of Nebuchadnezzar. God took away his mind for seven years and then gave it back to him. I was thinking of Cyrus, uh, uh, the great king of the Medo-Persian Empire, who it says at some point God stirred his heart in order that the word of God might be fulfilled to bring Israel out of captivity. Loved ones, never be afraid. It doesn't matter what evil is doing, how it's flourishing, how it's, how it's uh, uh, um, uh, being exhibited in your world, your particular world, or the world in which we live. Know and understand that evil is even evil is under the control of God's sovereign might. If there's one thing in all this world that rebels do not want to do, it is the purpose of God. 
But they're helpless to keep that sovereign purpose out of their hearts to protect their minds from invasion by the Lord God Almighty. In doing what they want to do, hating the harlot and ripping her to pieces, they are doing precisely what God wants. And in gathering to wage war against the Messiah, they are merely assembling for their own execution. God is in control, loved ones, of this world from start to finish. God works all things out according to the counsel of his will. God is sovereign over the minds and the hearts of all, evil and good alike. Let this soak in your heart a little this week. An example of this is in the death of our Lord. Acts chapter 4, verse 26 following says, the, earth, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, that's Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you had anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This is a whack of people. Hundreds, if not thousands, are gathered together against the anointed one. And it says here, they delivered him up according to the definite plan of God, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, even the crucifixion of our Lord was according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. It's astounding. And so, loved ones, I would say that when you find yourself surrounded by evil or overwhelmed by the evil, don't panic. But say, God, I don't understand it, I don't like it, but I know that you are sovereign even over this evil that is taking place in my world right now. And I think this is why we can pray. God, would you do something about it? Because God can turn evil in on itself. God can turn evil away from you. God can stop evil in our tracks. It's tracks. Why? Because he's sovereign over all things. So when we come to the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 17, and realize that there is a very real seductive influence in this world trying to draw us away from worship of the one true God, trying to seduce us into spiritual unfaithfulness to our God. Resist. Even though you live in Babylon, don't live for it. You have a choice of kings. Choose to be with Christ. And don't be afraid because God is sovereign over evil and good alike. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we find in strange places like even Revelation 17. Help us today as we wrestle with the reality of our lives and the reality of the spaces that you have placed us in to realize that there is a real anti-God force opposition to the things that are around us. Hold us fast, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.